0: cookie okay, balls 750 milliliter bottle of rum welcome to the valisi podcast a study in monology this is your grumpy uncle peter he will say words at you my thought of the day is in the empire strikes back at the beginning when the snow monster also known as a Wumpa, beat Luke Skywalker around the face like a bitch, dragged him into a cave, and then stuck his feet to the ceiling. How did he stick his feet to the ceiling? So I know he was unconscious, so he wasn't struggling, he wasn't fighting back, so it wasn't a very hard thing to do. But there's only three ways I can think of doing it. And one, he lifts Luke Skywalker up one foot at a time, and then heats up the ice that's already on the ceiling so that it melts and holds his foot there long enough for it to freeze, which seems like a very difficult process. It seems hard to melt the ice in an ice cave and not have it drop down because that's how gravity works. Now I know Hoth is an alien planet, but it seemed from all the scenes on the planet, that gravity worked exactly the same way as it did on earth. So as he melts the ice on the ceiling, it would actually drip down and then he would never have enough ice on the ceiling to stick Luke to the ceiling. Because as soon as he let go, it wouldn't be enough, sort of volume wise or strength wise, to hold him there and he would fall down immediately. So, melting from the ceiling doesn't seem to work because it would immediately drop down. So, he takes Luke Skywalker's feet and he holds them up to the ceiling and he spits on them. Now, there is a lot of ice around, so you could put ice in his mouth and actually spit water up, but. Even though the wampa is significantly larger than a human being, his mouth wasn't that big that it could hold liters of water that needed to be sprayed up towards the ceiling. And that water would have to freeze almost instantaneously for it to work. And if it's that cold, then Luke Skywalker in his unconscious state is probably going to be dead before he actually gets out of there. I know he leaves the cave and starts to hallucinate and Han Solo comes up and finds him and actually saves his life. That's hours later, I assume. There was no actually time frame in the movie actually given to the audience, but it seems like it's supposed to be a separate incident over a course of time. So it's not that cold. And I I think actually my problem with the spitting is that his mouth didn't seem that big to be able to hold that volume of water. And the water coming out of his mouth would already be warm. Would it be cold enough for when it hits the ceiling to actually chill and solidify fast enough? Because if you actually look, the way his feet are attached to the ceiling, that ice looks different from the ice around it. It sort of looks like it's been melted into place somehow. The third version has the same problem because of the warmth, but he could hold Luke Skywalker's feet up to the ceiling and pee into the ceiling enough so that it actually freezes. Now the distance between the groin area of the Wampa and the ceiling might be enough for it to cool so that when it hits, it starts to freeze more quickly. And the sad part is, I think that's the most reasonable explanation for what we see in the film. We don't see it get set up, so we don't have the facts in place, but how do Wampa attach living animals to the ceiling so they can't escape? It's a good plan. I'm actually on board with the Wampa on this part. The problem is, how do they get that done? And it seems like the only way is they pee. Maybe their pee is cooler, and so when it comes out, it actually is more likely to freeze when it gets to the ceiling. He'd have to have a pretty strong jet of urine as he shoots. And you might say, Peter, the frozen liquid that Luke Skywalker's feet were attached to the ceiling with was clear and therefore probably not urine because it's not yellow. But I mean, I'm betting a wampa eats a lot of ice, drinks a lot of ice, basically they're very well hydrated, I don't see why they wouldn't have fairly clear pee all the time. So I'm going to discount that because let's just face it, they have great kidney functions and they're drinking a lot of water, they're healthy animals, that's how they survive in this climate. You're not going to survive in the icy tundra of Hoth if you don't hydrate properly. I mean, let's not be stupid here. So. If someone else has an alternative fan theory, this is one I would like to hear and discuss further. If you have any comments, please email velocipodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet at VelociPeter and we can have a serious in-depth discussion about wampas attaching animals to the ceilings of caves in The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, As you probably know, if you're listening to this, I also run another podcast called Ninja News Japan. If you enjoy this content and you're interested in Japan, you would probably like that podcast a lot because it's all about Japanese news and what's happening in Japan at the moment. And I try to put in a little bit of my own point of view as someone who's lived in Japan for a long time, talking about the positive and negative aspects of the culture when possible both channels have kind of stagnated and that's because i do not know how to do social media so if you have any ideas on how to grow the podcast grow the audience a little bit right now i have a really satisfying audience but of course anyone who makes something and puts it out on the internet wants to grow it so i'm trying to figure out ways to do that one of the ways i've decided is to go onto youtube so if you go to youtube and search for veloci podcast you'll actually now find one sad little video sitting on its own What I've planned to do is go back to the old podcasts and actually see which ones have a premise that's worth animating and animating it on its own. So you can see the first experiment kind of up now. There's certainly a lot I have to learn. Primarily, I think I moved the camera or zoomed in by accident because a lot of the stuff I drew around the bottom actually got cut out. Uh, That seems to be some sort of error on the user's part, which was me in this case. I know to be more careful next time and hopefully the next video will be better. In fact, I can almost guarantee it is. I've now had the experience of putting one together from start to finish. The premise of that one, episode number four, was actually where does the material for the Hulk come from when he expands from Bruce Banner to the Hulk? And more importantly, where does it go when he shrinks down? So I propose a couple of theories. I address a theory that was presented to me by a friend of mine. And as I move forward, my plan is to release maybe one episode a month. It depends if I get more efficient at creating them. Right now, I'm thinking once a month, release one episode. As I move forward in the podcasts where we get to multiple segments, I want to choose one segment that seems interesting, animate that, and post it on. And hopefully, if people enjoy that material, they'll also subscribe to the podcast. If not, maybe I'll just become a massive YouTube star and make millions of dollars doing that. Although, you can see how well that's worked out in every other endeavor because... Oh, I'm sad now. Anyways, all I'd like to say is if you can share the podcast with other people, I would really appreciate it. If you could go check out the Velosa podcast on YouTube, I actually would really appreciate feedback because I'm trying to find ways to make it better. I have a couple of ideas already from my first experiment, but an outside view is always appreciated. And as always, thank you for the support. I've had a lot of people send me messages. I've had a lot of really positive interactions with people. It's really kept me motivated to keep making podcasts, even when it felt like no one was listening at all. So this is, again, I'm not using a computer voice, and I'm trying to sound sincere, and I think it's actually going okay. So I'm going to stop now while I'm ahead. This was one of the greatest core questions I've ever run across. And I honestly say, it's a really good conversation starter. The question is, why doesn't the USA buy Canada and Mexico to make a North American Union? And it is a really interesting idea. The problem immediately arises with, how do you buy a country? I think the person who wrote this question overestimates America's wealth, because first of all, How much does a country cost? There are only two ways I could think of that you could buy a country. And one would be to buy the Canadian government. And the government then sells the whole country to you. But does selling a country, the physical land, does that mean that the people therein now belong to America? Because I think what you've actually done is created a slave state where you own other people, which I'm pretty sure America kind of had an issue with that in the past and fell on the slavery is bad side. The other way I can think of it is the America, the country pays each individual Canadian X amount of dollars to become American, thus sort of absorbing the population into America. The risk there is that you end up having to pay so much to each individual Canadian that they now become wealthy compared to the average American and they then become the upper class. So your upper classes are now filled with Canadians and Canadian people with Canadian sensibilities who would then rule over the American middle and lower classes, thus changing the very nature of your country. And there's a third problem I don't think the questioner took into play, which would be Canadians have things like universal health care and a lot of support systems that they think are really important. Well, what you're actually doing is creating a whole new subset of people who believe in social welfare, who believe in sort of a socialist state, who would then start voting for people like Bernie Sanders. So by absorbing Canada into your country, you might end up with more socialist politicians getting to a higher point, someone like Bernie Sanders, let's say, actually getting to the presidency. And now what's happening to your country? You aren't the greatest country in the world anymore. You are a new socialist republic with free education and healthcare. And my understanding is that the average American person thinks that is the worst situation possible and doesn't want that to happen. So I actually am not making fun of this question. It's really interesting because how do you buy a whole nation and what is the resultant effect of buying that population into your population? America has a much, much significantly higher population than Canada, but Canadians being almost universally liberal in comparison to Americans, that would have a significant impact on your country. And all the same questions apply to Mexico. So you have to decide, are you gonna buy the government? Are you gonna buy the population? Are you gonna buy them both together? Is that how that works? And here's the secondary thing, you have the interesting assumption I made was that Canadians would be socially equal to Americans which I'm actually betting if America bought Canada isn't the way American citizenry would actually feel about Canadians. They would probably see them as second-class citizens. So now you have a whole new class issue arising that you didn't have before. So while, of course, I don't think this is a good idea, it is a worthwhile exercise to think and extrapolate what would be the resultant effects of buying another country and absorbing them into yours. Quora question, why are all psychotherapists so bad at their jobs? And this is an interesting question because it uses the term all. And whenever someone says all something is bad, I often think statistically speaking, it's probably not true. So why are all psychotherapists so bad at their jobs? I would bet that they're not. There's only one constant in this equation, and that is the person making the statement. So anyone who makes a statement about all stuff, so everyone is wrong, everyone in my company is wrong, everyone in my social circle is wrong, everybody I meet is wrong, they are probably wrong. Just because statistically speaking, what they're saying isn't true. I mean, there's an expression, and it's not particularly astute or poetic, but it is, if you smell shit everywhere you go, You should check your shoes. And I've always found that really resonated with me because it keeps me sort of in check. If there is a problem everywhere you go, if you are constantly getting arrested, if you're constantly getting in fights, if you're constantly having difficulties, it isn't the world around you that is having a problem. It is most likely, again, statistically speaking more than anything else, that you are the problem. Now, someone who's in this mindset isn't going to believe that, but if you could start pointing things out to them, making them understand, well, maybe they could start to pull it back a little bit. I'm not actually saying you can even correct this behavior, because this is the kind of thing that I think is sort of bred into someone from when they're very young, but you could at least have them try to get it under control, and if they can get it under control, maybe they'll be better, and that's why you go see a psychotherapist in the first place. So in Japan there is a comic called Doraemon and it became an anime on TV, it's for kids, it's played for many many years, I actually have no idea because I I didn't look it up, but it's old, it's been around for a long time. When I was learning to read Japanese I actually started with Doraemon comics because uh, they're pretty simplistic stories but they are also incredibly repetitive so they get super boring super fast. The premise of most of these is that you have Nobita who gets bullied a lot and has a lot of problems in his life, and then his friend Doraemon is a robot cat from the future, and he can pull gadgets out of his pouch. Those gadgets are always really specific, like it'll have like a copy gun, or it'll have like this tofu that you can eat and you can speak English, or... Anyways, just really, really specific gadgets to solve very specific problems. The story's comedic value usually comes from the fact that the kid overdoes it, and then regrets actually using the gadget instead of just doing the actual study or work or effort himself. It's supposed to teach kids that you have to do things for yourself, you can't just get a machine to do things for you. Um, it goes against the decline of population in Japan because they're gonna need automation to actually support a lot of the country in the future. So you don't want actually, kids growing up with this idea, you want them to think robots and automation is really cool. Hopefully they'll get into those fields and actually solve all of Japan's problems in the future. That's a little bit of editorialization that is unnecessary. Um, You can go back in time and skip that if you want. Basically, the character has really bad grades. He gets bullied. He's kind of a loser. That's the whole point of this character. Now, the cat, Doraemon, was sent back in time to help him. But there's a very interesting element there because the cat at the beginning is sent back and says, You marry, and this is really offensive, you marry the ugliest girl on the street you never are successful, you live a horrible life, and I'm here to help you succeed. So his great great grandson or great grandson actually is the famous inventor who created Doraemon and sent him back in time. So he's created a robot that is essentially sentient and has unlimited capabilities. He has also created time travel and he uses this to improve his great grandfather's life. Now there are a lot of sudden questions that go along with this and that's because if Nobita doesn't marry the least attractive girl on the street and he turns his life around because the goal here is for him to marry the most attractive girl on the street, get a really good job and live a really good life. But then the great-grandson will not exist and thus becomes a problematic time loop because then Doraemon won't be created and he won't be sent back in time to help. So this is one of those very high-level time travel questions. How does this work? And I don't think the creators of Dortmund actually thought it through because the great-grandson's genes come from this pairing. So if he's a genius, it's a result of this pairing and changing that pair will change the results. He might be more of a genius, but he might not be a genius at all. In fact, Nobita having a really good life might actually change the conditions of the world enough that he is never born or he's born and he just doesn't have the initiative or the desire or the drive to actually create time travel. So the important thing to realize is that this great-grandson must come from a separate timeline. And what he's doing is messing with the current timeline in order to get the results that he wants. So somehow the amount of technology that is being thrown about is magical because that's what they're using. They're actually replacing magic with science. But the level he's working on, he clearly would be able to examine alternate timelines. And he doesn't want to erase himself. We're going to give that as a basic assumption, that people don't want to erase themselves from history, that they want to actually make things better, perhaps for themselves. Maybe that is a completely negative result. But for themselves, they're trying to make things better. So to me, it's that this great-grandson, his name is Sewashi, must come from a different gene pool than the one created by Nobita and the unattractive girl he ends up marrying. So he has sent Doraemon back in time to change the results to create the gene pool that he wants that he actually comes from. In this story there are no time loops because actually the system would break down as soon as this loop was implemented. So it has to be alternate timelines. So every change in decision deviates from a single timeline and creates another one where that decision was not made. So if you want to learn how to read Japanese please go ahead and pick up a copy of the Doraemon comic. You'll be really bored but then take a moment go back and look at the origin story and throw your head into it and you'll actually find a very complex and confusing and slightly terrifying time travel story. The real problem is Doraemon's motives are not really to support Nobita. The person he's supposedly a friend with. It is actually to complete the mission to create the person who creates him. So everyone in this is following a self interested path, which shows that no matter how technologically involved we might become as a species, we are still going to be the same base animals that are self interested and nothing else. The Loss of Podcast. Hey, sexy friend he's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at Velocipeter or email velocipodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or go to velocipeter.com slash podcast.